On October 7th, 2001, the United States, under the direction of George W. Bush, launched what it called Operation Enduring Freedom, a somewhat perverse name for the first stage of the American War in Afghanistan, a war that would rage on for 20 years, kill tens of thousands of civilians, displace millions of people, and cause widespread systemic destruction so severe that it transformed Afghanistan into a completely failed state. This is the second part of my two-part series on the history of modern Afghanistan covering the country in the 21st century. If you're interested in learning some of the context that will be important in this episode, check out episode 117, which covers from the 1830s to the eve of the new millennium. In case you haven't heard that episode, I'll give you a quick primer here because knowing some of the 20th century history of Afghanistan is really important to understanding the key players and their motivations in the 2000s. So, to recap, in 1978, the leftist Sour Revolution instigated a coup that created a new pro-Soviet government. Their wide-ranging reforms, including land reform, education for women, and the abolition of arranged marriages, created friction in the countryside where they ran up against the interests of tribal leaders and large landowners. Ultimately, this grew into an open rebellion that the Afghan government was unable to decisively quash. After having their requests for Soviet intervention repeatedly denied, the assassination of the Afghan president by a rival faction finally spurred the Soviets to send troops in December 1979. Their first move was to assassinate the murderous dictator who had since risen to power and replace him with uh, someone more palatable. Meanwhile, the American government saw this as an opportunity to create a Vietnam-esque war that would bleed the Soviets dry. To this end, they provided extensive military aid to an anti-Soviet group called the Mujahideen, an organization that would go on to largely transform into the Taliban, and which counted Osama bin Laden amongst its leaders. This insurgency was ultimately successful, and the Soviets eventually left Afghanistan in defeat in February 1989. After the pro-Soviet government collapsed in 1992, Afghanistan was plunged into two civil wars, one that lasted from 1992 to 1996, in which the newly formed Taliban fought to consolidate power against local warlords, and another from 1996 to 2001, in which two former militia leaders united into the Northern Alliance and unsuccessfully fought the Taliban for control of the country. By the dawn of the 21st century, the Taliban, which takes its name from the Arabic word for a student of Islam, Talib, had come to control almost 90% of the country, instituting extremely harsh laws based on their fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. At the end of the first civil war, Osama bin Laden, whose terrorist network Al-Qaeda was founded to support the anti-Soviet Mujahideen, had relocated to Afghanistan. Bin Laden himself had previously been the direct recipient of American aid. In 1998, al-Qaeda bombed the U.S. Embassy, and so Bin Laden got on the American's shit list. The U.S. then enacted strong sanctions and demanded that the new Taliban government surrender Bin Laden, which they initially refused to do. That, essentially, catches us up to the year 2000, during and after which is the topic of this episode. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 118, A Brief History of Modern Afghanistan, part two. 
Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Well, anyway, Y2K comes and goes, and what changes for the future of Afghanistan? Well, for starters, the idiot Texan son of the former CIA director, probable JFK assassin, and ex-president George H.W. Bush successfully stole the election of 2000, and while his predecessor Bill Clinton was certainly no dove, famously the first time Hillary talked to him in months after the Lewinsky scandal was when she urged him to bomb Yugoslavia, this new president marked a dramatic shift in American policy. By January 2001, when Bush assumed office, the CIA was already proposing plans for a massive operation to hunt down bin Laden. By that summer, it was the official stance of the Bush administration to agitate for regime change in Afghanistan, and that they would use all means possible, including a direct invasion, to topple the Taliban government if they refused to comply with their requests to surrender Osama bin Laden. And then, of course, 9-11 happens. And this is a topic for a whole other episode, so I'm not going to talk about it here. But 9-11 brings about just a completely seismic shift in American culture. Bush's approval rating tops out at 92%. Patriotism and the flag are subject to this grotesque fetishization. Hate crimes against Muslims go through the roof. And the Bush administration takes advantage of their opportunity and uses 9-11 as a pretext to strip away scores of civil rights, especially the rights of Muslims, who were not only subject to the intense violence of an Islamophobic public, but also routinely had their mosques infiltrated by the FBI and in New York by the NYPD. PD. Muslims were blackmailed into serving as informants, and FBI agents entrapped innocent Muslims in terror plots that they themselves had planned. Muslims were routinely falsely accused of crimes by the federal government and either had their property seized or were sent to prison. In one famous example, in December 2001, the federal government baselessly declared the largest Muslim charity in America, the Holy Land Foundation, a terrorist organization. The charity then had all of their assets frozen, and eventually, in 2009, its founders were sentenced to between 15 and 65 years in prison, the latter of which, I may add, is essentially a life sentence, in a case where there was not a single shred of evidence of any crime. <laughs> but anyway, here I was saying I wouldn't talk about 9-11. This is all to say that the Bush administration had a plan. I mentioned this last episode, but, for example, in March 2001, Dick Cheney had a map drawn up of Iraqi oil fields and the companies that had contracts there. 9-11 was really just an excuse. That's further illustrated by the fact that the Taliban actually disavowed 9-11 and said that if the United States presented them with evidence that bin Laden was involved in the attacks, they would surrender him to a neutral third party for extradition to the United States. For his part, George Bush said this on September 20th, 2001, in an address to the Joint Session of Congress. I've edited out a lot of the applause, but just imagine that each clapping segment goes on for a freakishly long time. They are eating this up. And tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. Release all foreign nationals, including American citizens you have unjustly imprisoned. 
protect foreign journalists, diplomats, and aid workers in your country. Close immediately and permanently every terrorist training camp in Afghanistan and hand over every terrorist and every person in their support structure to appropriate authorities. Give the United States full access to terrorist training camps so we can make sure they are no longer operating. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. The Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. Now, this is a classic foreign policy tactic here, and it's one that America uses a lot during foreign negotiations. It was the precursor to the war in Iraq, and it's uh, kind of what caused World War I, but it's the tactic of laying out an extensive list of non-negotiable demands that would be, in practice, impossible to fully comply with for one reason or another. For example, the demand to essentially open up the country for an American terrorist inspection is something that's engineered to be refused. Why would any government, especially one that knows that American policy agitates for its overthrow, let agents of the United States poke around unsupervised? The Taliban reiterate their willingness to surrender bin Laden for a trial if evidence is given of his guilt, to which the Bush administration replies that he doesn't need a trial because they know he's guilty, and that also none of our demands are up for any discussion. America quickly escalated to war, as President Bush used the unilateral war powers granted to him by the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, which had been signed weeks earlier, to begin Operation Enduring Freedom which began as a bombing campaign on October 7th, 2001, and followed with the arrival of ground troops on October 19th. The United States invaded with an international coalition, with Britain providing the second largest military commitment. By early November, Taliban forces were in retreat, and the coalition created the International Security Assistance Force, the ISAF, to begin the process of forming a provisional government, made up of heads of numerous factions, but intentionally excluding the Taliban. In December 2001, bin Laden escaped across the border to Pakistan, and shortly after, al-Qaeda collapsed. It seemed that the United States had accomplished nearly all of its goals in Afghanistan, and so the Bush administration pivoted to telling the American people that they were now in the process of rebuilding the country. In reality, little rebuilding actually occurred. Hamid Karzai, who was named as the new president, tolerated and facilitated vast corruption and named many former warlords to positions of power in his government. Of the tens of billions of dollars that the United States spent on rebuilding Afghanistan, only a tiny fraction actually provided anyone with material help. As the coalition forces began to take over the administrative duties and rebuilding efforts for different Afghan provinces, a logistical mess that would prove seriously inefficient, American forces continued to fight pockets of the Taliban left across the country, in the process killing increasing amounts of civilians, destroying homes, and abusing the Afghan people. This, in turn, began to give the Taliban a base of popular support amongst the people. In May 2003, Donald Rumsfeld declared an end to major combat operations in Afghanistan. 
This also marks the time when George Bush did his famous mission accomplished photo shoot on the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln. Almost immediately after this, the Taliban mounted a major offensive in the south of Afghanistan, this time with a relatively high degree of popular support. The Taliban correctly pointed out that the American and coalition forces could and would not protect the Afghan people, which was a readily apparent fact. The Americans, outside of committing strings of atrocities themselves, had partnered with warlords around the country in an attempt to hold territory. In practice, this meant that American-backed militias terrorized, maimed, and murdered innocent civilians with no fear of punishment. And so, when the resurgent Taliban called on young men to rise up against the Americans in a holy war, more listened than had previously. Though Bush had celebrated a mission accomplished, the only real thing he had achieved was to further ingrain the insurgency. This steady escalation of Taliban attacks continued throughout 2003 to 2005, and finally exploded in the summer of 2006. Suicide bombings quintupled, and IED use more than doubled. It was around this time that a stalemate seemed to be setting in. Bush continued to escalate military action in the South, but saw little gains, and the repeated atrocities committed by American soldiers served only to strengthen the insurgency. By the time Bush left office in January 2009, the United States had about 32,000 soldiers on the ground. Almost as soon as Obama took office, he reaffirmed his commitment to the war in Afghanistan, and throughout the spring and summer of 2009 would almost double the American troop presence. By August of that year, there were 60,000 soldiers stationed in Afghanistan. It's at this time that the faith in the Afghan government as a legitimate body continued to weaken. The 2004 election that had seen Hamid Karzai elected as president had already been suspected of fraud, but election shenanigans in 2009 were even more blatant, and further made obvious the fact that the government of Afghanistan wasn't exactly the legitimate arbiter of the people's will that it claimed to be. In December of that year, Obama announced his surge, the deployment of an additional 30,000 troops to Afghanistan, on top of the 68,000 already there. At this time, White House messaging still claimed that troop withdrawal would be in 2011, a deadline that was looking increasingly unlikely. Indeed, the following November, the deadline for final withdrawal was extended to 2014. The stalemate continued. And then on May 1st, 2011, Osama bin Laden was killed in his compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and it seemed like the final American goal for the war had been accomplished. Accordingly, Obama announced the beginning of troop withdrawals, sending home some of the soldiers he deployed upon first taking office. Twice during this period did the United States sabotage attempts by the Afghan government to reach a deal with the Taliban. In accordance with previous agreements, American and coalition forces turned over military responsibility to the Afghan government in 2014. At the time, this was billed as the beginning of the end of the war in Afghanistan, though it would be nothing of the sort. Thousands of troops would remain behind to train the army, and even when Obama announced his timeline of troop withdrawal in 2014, which called for troops to leave by 2016, his plan provisioned for an American force to stay behind and conduct counterterrorism operations. This marked the end 
of Operation Enduring Freedom, and in doing so, the Obama administration attempted to paint it as an end to the war itself. But in reality, it was just a change of branding. Enduring Freedom had ended in 2014 with the expiration of the international mandate for American presence in Afghanistan, and for American soldiers to stay beyond this date required the president of Afghanistan to let them. It was merely a formality, though. Both candidates in the upcoming election had promised to let the Americans stay. In Enduring Freedom's place rose Operation Freedom Sentinel. Eventually, Obama left office, failing to deliver on his promise to bring the war to a close by the end of his second term, among a number of other broken promises, and was replaced by Donald Trump, who largely carried on Operation Freedom Sentinel as it had been going, but in the tradition of Obama, expanded on what his predecessor had given him. When Obama left office, around 8,400 troops remained in Afghanistan. Trump would increase this to 14,000, as well as remove any timelines that Obama had set for withdrawal, much to the delight of the Afghan government and American weapons manufacturers. Even with Trump's increased troop numbers, or perhaps because of them, American and Afghan forces continued to lose ground to the Taliban. The American hearts and minds approach had failed miserably, most probably because the Americans themselves had never even considered it. I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about some of the atrocities that American forces committed over the course of the war. From the very beginning, American forces had very little concern for the value of Afghan lives. In December 2001, hundreds of prisoners were intentionally suffocated to death in shipping containers and executed in fields while American soldiers looked on. American servicemen desecrated corpses and took photos with mutilated body parts. Prisoners, who could often not be guilty of any crime, were routinely beaten and tortured to death while in American custody. In the infamous Bagram prison, American soldiers chained prisoners to the ceiling and beat them to death, as well as housed them in tiny cages coated in barbed wire. In one famous case, a group of four soldiers formed a secret kill team that murdered innocent civilians for sport and collected their fingers as trophies. To give you insight into what kind of war we were fighting, in 2010 a picture leaked of a marine sniper team posing with an American flag and the flag of the Nazi SS. Soldiers were instructed to ignore the rampant abuse of young boys by their Afghan counterparts. In 2009, an American drone launched a missile on what was known to be a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Kunduz, killing over a hundred civilians. The United States would go on to pay each of the victims' families $5,000, the apparent price of a human life. In 2012, Staff Sergeant Robert Bales murdered 16 civilians in Kandahar province, including nine children. In 2008, the United States ordered a drone strike on what it knew to be a wedding, killing 47 people, including the bride. In 2010, the United States dropped over 25 tons of bombs on the villages of Khosro Sofla, Tarok Kolache, and Lower Babur, completely wiping them off the map. I could go on, of course. The list of American crimes in Afghanistan is as long as it is gruesome. And in the face of such a reality, it's no wonder that the Taliban had no trouble growing their ranks. 
If you need any more proof of the guilt of the United States, in 2018, the U.S. threatened to arrest and sanction any judge on the International Criminal Court that pursued an American for war crimes in Afghanistan. Hardly the actions of a righteous nation. In 2019, as the futility of an American victory in Afghanistan became obvious to even the most ossified reptile in the executive branch, the Trump administration continued to participate in tentative peace talks with the Taliban. This was, of course, practically in spite of Trump himself, who publicly blew up peace negotiations on Twitter. In February 2020, the United States and the Taliban successfully signed the Agreement for Bringing Peace to Afghanistan, which scheduled the complete departure of U.S. troops by May 1, 2021, and served as a guarantee from the Taliban that Afghanistan would not be used to harbor terrorists. That fall, the United States would begin withdrawing its troops for the last time. In January 2021, Biden assumed office and that April announced that the United States would not be able to meet its May 1st deadline, and that instead, the American withdrawal would be complete by September 11th, 2021. Cute. Of course, you've more than likely been made familiar with what comes next thanks to cable news, but by the middle of August, the American public government completely collapsed. And in a rapid offensive, the Taliban captured practically the entire country, making for a chaotic final American departure on August 30th. Joe Biden, of course, got a lot of criticism for the way that the final withdrawal unfolded, that it had effectively ended in one rapid, chaotic collapse. Now, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you'll know that I'm not a fan of Joe Biden. I did a pretty exhaustive episode before the election on the myriad of reasons why I think he is one of the most despicable people in American politics, but Biden is correct in this very limited instance. The American war in Afghanistan was an unmitigated disaster. I hope that much has been made clear from this episode, and it would have been impossible to organize a peaceful, orderly withdrawal. I mean, for God's sake, Afghan soldiers had been trained so that they could only fight effectively with American air support. So no matter what happened, at the very foundation, you have a necrotic state that doesn't have the strength to stand on its own, doesn't have popular support, and doesn't even know how to defend itself. The end of the war was always going to be chaos because that's what the entire war was. All of the talking heads on the news going on and on about how botched the withdrawal was really just want to keep troops in Afghanistan forever. My approval, however, only goes so far. In a fitting end to a cruel and inhuman war waged by an arrogant empire, the United States abandoned many of its translators and civilian employees, assigning them less value than their military dogs, all of whom were evacuated. American forces also left behind all of the biometric data on the civilians it worked with, which has since been captured by the Taliban. And in one final cruel blow in a brutal two-decade war, in early September 2021, an American drone fired on a car containing a worker for a California-based aid group, killing him and nine other civilians, including seven children. The military claimed that it was an ISIS car bomb, but reality suggested nothing of the sort. Right now, the future of Afghanistan is uncertain. For the first time in 20 years, the people of Afghanistan finally know peace, 
a fact that has already generated popular support for the new Taliban government. While the United States has claimed the official end to the war, it's likely that it will continue covert and illegal action to agitate resistance to the government for years to come. The impact of Afghanistan on the United States, too, is uncertain. Will our own colossal failure in the graveyard of empires herald our own decline and collapse, much like the Soviet Union? I suppose only time will tell. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this little mini-series, and maybe have learned a thing or two about the history of Afghanistan along the way. If you did, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks again for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.